This evening, as we continue in this blessed month of Ramadan and the opportunity that Allah has given us to fast, to pray, to read the Quran, to get closer to Him, we continue in our review of Surah Al-Fath, chapter number 48 of the Noble Quran. This evening being session number four, and the theme that we want to look at is the greatest achievement for a believer. So if you'll recall over the last uh, two nights at least, once we got past introduction, uh, we looked at the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, the Peace Treaty of Hudaybiyah. And yesterday we looked at, or the, the two days prior, we looked at the role of the Prophet, what he ended up having to do, what the uh, responsibility was of Rasulullah. We looked at the fact that this was a very bitter time for the believers, a very difficult time for the mu'mineen, for the companions of the messenger. Uh, they were in a position where they basically were almost giving away a lot of what they felt to be their freedoms and their autonomy as a Muslims. They had to sign this treaty. But we also looked at the fact that Allah sent down sakina, tranquility upon the believers, added to their iman. And that that temporary setback, if we want to call it that, ended up resulting in a full victory because the Muslims were then free to travel around the Arabian Peninsula and beyond with no, uh, with no threat or fear of being attacked. They were free to, tra you know, to, to, to engage in tabliq and propagation of the religion. And basically that ma manifest victory that Allah promised in the first verse became quite apparent for the Muslims when they look back in hindsight. And as we know in English, we even have the saying that hindsight is 2020. So it took that event of the peace treaty and all of that you know, came after it for them to actually recognize where their victory lied. So today we want to pick up from where we left off and look at what happened in the aftermath of the treaty. As we said that they weren't allowed to go to Umrah, so they ended up leaving uh, Asfan where they were located camped. They went back to Medina. Well, they had to shave their heads, they slaughtered their animals, they came out of the ihram, and they basically ended up going back to the city of Medina. And one of the things that happened, and this is um, one of the a couple of the companions actually, and this is narrated in both Shia and Sunni sources of tafsir, they approach Rasulullah after all that's transpired, and they say to the Prophet, they say, Haniyan laka ya Rasulullah, congratulations to you, O Messenger of Allah. You know, Allah has clarified for you what what you will receive in terms of the rewards and blessings, and we looked at four of those blessings. So now the companions were wondering, well, what do we get out, out of it, right? What's in it for us? We accompanied you all the way to Mecca or to the outskirts of Mecca. We were prevented from Umrah. Allah says we've given the, you know, we've given you Fathan Mubin, we've given you the forgiveness, we've given you the completion of blessings, we've got the, the guidance on the path. So the Sahaba are seeing all of these things are given to the Prophet by Allah, the four blessings. They're like, what about us? What do we get out of all of this? We've also been all, you know, and this is a natural response, I think. We're all, you know, we all ask these questions. Well, we've done all of this ibadah, now what do we get? Right? Other than the benefit of, you know, what we might get in the world to come. Maybe the Sahaba were looking at it from the worldly perspective. What else do we get out of this peace treaty now? So this is the question that they were asked, or that was asked rather of the Messenger of Allah. And Allah responds to the Sahaba with verse number 5, which we want to look at tonight. Where Allah says, أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ بِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمِ لِيُدْخِلَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتِ جَنَّاتٍ تَجْرِي مِنْ تَحْتِهَا الْأَنْهَارِ خَالِدِينَ فِيهَا وَيُكَفِّرَ عَنْهُمْ سَيِّعَاتِهِمْ 
وَكَانَ ذَلِكَ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ فَوْزًا عَظِيمًا So the response Allah says is that what you want, O companions of the Prophet, is that and that he, Allah, may admit the believing men and the believing women into gardens, jannat, through which rivers flow, therein to abide forever, and may blot out from them their evil deeds. That is a supreme triumph in the sight of Allah. So just as Allah had promised Rasulullah in verse number 2 and 3, what he would be giving to the Prophet, uh, verse 4 looked at one of the aspects of what the, of, of what the Muslims, the companions, would have been given. And this verse 5 goes on to talk about at least two more blessings that the Sahaba were given by Allah. So as a reminder, right, when we looked at the gifts given to the Prophet, we looked at him being cleared of any negative repercussions of his actions, what Allah ref defined as being forgiveness of his past and future sins. But as we talked about, the Prophet doesn't commit sins, so we refer to it as the, the outcome of his actions of preaching Islam, that those uh, negative repercussions would have been cleared from him. We had the completion of the favors, as Allah mentioned, and also keeping him on the straight path, giving him that continuous guidance and the assistance of Allah. The companions were given uh, these three gifts. Some could even say actually four. Uh, one is the descent of Sakina, the tranquility on the prophet, uh, on the companions rather, and the calmness. Number two is granting the believing men and women paradise with all of the blessings. In this verse, Allah just points to the rivers that flow in Jannah, but other ayat would give us other descriptions of paradise. Uh, the next one would be the removal of all of their sins, which they had committed. And I'm going to elaborate on those, that one a little bit later. And granting them a great victory. So the companions are not leaving Hudaybiyah or uh, the Mecca region empty-handed. Right? They've gotten the reward as if they had done the Umrah. But they're also getting all of this also from Allah. So let me go through some of the things in here. I mean, obviously, if you look at it, لِيُدْخِلَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتِ جَنَّاتِ Allah is giving them Jannah, paradise. This is a constant theme within the Qur'an. In actuality, one-third of the Qur'an is about Yawm Al-Qiyamah, the day of judgment and accountability and the rewards and punishments. So one of the first blessings that Allah is promising the believers now, keeping in mind that this is about specifically the peace treaty of Hudaybiyah and the outcome for the companions, but also we need to recognize that we can uh, you know, transplant our own lives into these verses and by following and obeying the Prophet, these same rewards are also promised for us. So it's not just a 1,400-year-ago promise and ended with the death of the companions. It continues till now. But Jannah is one of the things that we all look forward to or at least hopefully we do. Right? The Qur'an is very descriptive. One of the things, however, that the Qur'an, the way that, the way that the Qur'an is structured, I could say, is that it's based on our language, on what we understand. So when Allah talks about Jannah being gardens of thick, rich, green forestry, it's because you and I know what a green forest looks like. When Allah says there are rivers that run through Jannah, it's because we know what rivers look like. When Allah talks about the date palm and the pomegranate and the grapes and all the other fruits, He gives examples of what you and I know. Otherwise, we actually would understand Jannah to be much greater than what the Quran tells us because 
the way that the hadith described Jannah is that what is waiting there for the believers is are things which no human eye has ever seen, no ear has ever heard of, and no intellect has even ever imagined. Right? So because Allah is limited, in this, Allah, we know Allah to be unlimited, but when He communicates to us, He's limited because He can only communicate to you and I in concepts that we know. We can't understand things that we have no experience with, right? If you were to tell, for example, somebody who's born blind about what an orange looks like or what a pineapple looks like, right? To describe it if they've never even felt it, right? No, let's say a pineapple, because it's got some texture to it. It's got the, the stem at the top and the fruit has a texture. Now, if you were to try to explain that to somebody who was born blind, who's never even felt it, you know, and they had never felt what thorns are like or any of the aspects of a pineapple, they would not understand what you're saying to them, right? Because they've never experienced it. But if they were to feel the pineapple with their hands and they knew what a thorn is now and they knew what, you know, these leaves are at the top and they're triangular in shape and they could feel the leaf, then they could basically build upon that. And anytime you give them something that has leaves on it, they would have a, a general notion, at least, of it, or thorns, right? But in the Qur'an, Allah can't describe to us the actual blessings because there's nothing like that on earth. So He has to resort to rivers of milk, of honey, of water, of what He calls a wine that does not intoxicate, because these are concepts that we know. When Allah talks about fruit, like, like I said, the pomegranate, the grapes, the dates, it's because we understand we eat these fruits, right? Otherwise, if he were to give us a name or give us a concept of a fruit in Jannah, we couldn't understand it because it's within, it's outside of our frame of understanding, right? So the first thing Allah tells these believing men and women is that paradise with all of the blessings, whether I've talked about them in the Quran and the Prophet has explained in the Hadith, those are waiting for you. And whether he has not talked about them, those are also there. The removal of the sins, again, I'll look at it a bit in detail. But the next thing that Allah mentions is what He says at the end of the verse is that this is fawzun azima, that this is a supreme triumph. In our world, you know, most times we look at victory or success as a six-figure income, for example. Right? People who are in different age brackets will look at victory or success in different ways. But ultimately, Allah is saying that the true success, the true triumph, is to get to paradise. It's not getting ahead in the temporal world. It's not making billions of dollars. It's not anything to do with the material world, although we use this world to get to the other world. So we never want to say we're turning our, way, our face away from the dunya. No, we need to use this, right? Just like the Sahaba need to understand that you need to use the temporal world to get to the eventual Jannah. We also have to keep that in mind, brothers and sisters, that just as they struggled for paradise, that's also what we have to do. But this term is interesting, Fawzan Adima. It comes up 19 times in the Quran, the actual uh, word Fawz at least. Um, but then Allah uses it 16 times with Fawzan Adima. And out of the other three times, two times Allah says Fawzan Mubin, right? This clear, triumph, right? So here it's a supreme and, and Mubin is a clear triumph. And one time Allah says, Fawzan al-Kabir, right? The major triumph. 
So the reason I wanted to point this out is that Raghib al-Isfahani, he's a very famous uh, lexographer, he's written uh, a dictionary concordance of the Qur'an explaining the words of the Qur'an in the Arabic words in his book Al-Mufradat. He says this word fawz, it means to safely achieve a victory and success. But he says that even if that, but that success, even if it comes, even if success of the world to come needs to come at the expense of losing out on the material world. So he's saying that in order to achieve this fawzan azima or fawzan al-mubin or fawzan al-kabir, sometimes it means you need to sacrifice the success of this world. Sometimes as believers, we'll recognize that we will be put face to face with situations where our livelihood may depend on maybe committing a sin, right? We may have to do something haram, and that would compromise our potential outcome in the world to come in the akhirat. So he's saying that in order to achieve that true victory and success, safely achieving it, that means that sometimes we will have to leave certain things in this dunya aside if we want success in the world to come. Right? And when we live in a Western society, a very secular world, we know that this is all the more a challenge when we're working in the corporate world. Right? Because many times maybe you'll need to go to a dinner, let's say with your manager or people at work, and maybe a promotion might depend on it because you know a lot of those wheels and deals and your reputation is made over those dinners. But what if you're told, okay, we're going for dinner as a team function and the, and the director or somebody wants to have a word with you, but they're serving alcohol at that table. We know as Shias, it is haram to sit at a table where alcohol is being served. But now you think, well, if I don't go to that dinner with the directors and managers and maybe CEOs or whatever the case may be, and I don't sit at that table and I don't, you know, be with the, with the team and the management team, I might lose out on a promotion. I might lose out on, a, on, on an opportunity to get ahead in the company. So we have an option. Either we sacrifice our worldly objectives for our religion, or we say, you know what, I'll go to that dinner. I'll go to the club. I'll go to the bar with my team. And I'll come home and do istighfar because Allah is ghafoor rahim right? So I can sit at a table. I'll drink my Coca-Cola. I don't have to, you know, I won't drink the alcohol, I won't have a glass of beer, I'll sit and have a, a halal drink, but then I'll go home and do istighfar, maybe I'll go for hajj, I'll go for ziyarat, I'll do umrah, and I'll be able to ask Allah for forgiveness for that one time I sat for an hour in a, in a bar, right? Sometimes we will, or maybe not sometimes, a lot of times we'll be put in a similar situation. I know when I worked in the corporate sector and we had to travel to Budapest, to Hungary, for work and we were I was put in that similar situation so it's a, it's a it's a it's a thing that will happen I'm sure very often to us when we live in this environment and work in, the, in this society and this is where we have to remember brothers and sisters that there will be times in our lives that we will have to or we will be put in a position of either compromising our religion to get ahead in the material world or no we say you know what I won't compromise my my, my religious principles that means I miss out, so be it. Allah is the one who is the true, the true razik, the one who gives the risk and the sustenance, and I'll wait for him for something else to come my way. But it takes iman, it takes a strong courage, willpower, to be able to say to somebody, you know what, I respect your offer, but 
for religious reasons, I can't go to that establishment. For religious reasons, I can't shake the hand of a non-mahram, or whatever the case may be. Again, there are challenges, but these are things that we have to face in life. And this statement where Allah says, Fawzan Adima, this should remind us of the famous statement of Mawla Amir al-Mu'mineen alayhi salam, where when he's in the Masjid of Kufa, and we'll, we'll be marking his obviously shahadat in about you know, uh, two weeks' time, when he is hit on the head by Ibn Muljim, the first thing he says is, Fustu wa Rabbil Kaaba. Right? Fawzan, that, that success, I have achieved success. He achieved it not through being the brother of the Prophet, the son-in-law of Rasul. He didn't say when he married Bibi Fatima, Fustu, that I'm, I'm successful. He didn't say I'm successful when he was writing the Quran or when ayat were being revealed about him. He never used that term that I've been successful at any aspect of his life or any arena of his life when he was victorious in the battle of Badr or Uhud or when he helped in the battle, the victory of Khaybar. I never read there he said, Fuztu wa Rabbil Kaaba. It's when he's martyred, when he's attacked and the attack leads to his martyrdom is where he says, Fuztu wa Rabbil Kaaba. He may have given up his worldly life but it was for the akhirat, right? for the world to come. And that's where he identified success. Is that when you leave this world, you leave it in a way that you are in a complete state of submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I want to move on with this quote from Ayatollah Nasim Akarim Shirazi from his Tafsir Namuna when he looks at this verse. And I think there's a lot of uh, hopefully inspiration for us where he says that sometimes the tests which Allah gives us they're so hard and exhausting that they have the potential to destroy, the to destroy believers of weak faith and can turn the spiritual hearts upside down. So those who have weak faith, when we go through examinations in life, as we will always go through, those who have very weak faith, they are bound to be destroyed if they, if they haven't held on firmly to Allah. But then he says, thus it is only the true believers that enjoy the blessings of peace and tranquility, the sukun, the sakina that we looked at yesterday, as they resist all the odds. And it is they who will fully benefit from their responses to worldly challenges on the day of resurrection. And this, he says, is truly a great victory. So as we mentioned even yesterday that Iman, according to the one hadith, has 10 levels. Hey, when the hadith mentioned, don't drag people who are at level, uh, don't push them down because other people can push you down, rather try and bring people up. We all, we all have to recognize we're all at different levels of iman and we have to strengthen our iman and our conviction of Allah because if not, when we go through examinations in life and that they will go every day, we'll have some test in our life. If we don't have that will and that strong determination, we're bound to fall. We're bound to lose our iman, lose our religion. And God forbid we leave this world on a path of anything other than submission to Allah. So as we go through these verses, you know, one of the goals is to ensure that we strengthen our iman, especially in this month of Ramadan. I want to touch upon uh, three, these three gifts that are promised to the believing men and women. And it's interesting if you notice that Allah didn't say that these, this Jannah, is for the mu'mineen. You know, because mu'mineen in Arabic, brothers and sisters, it can actually, although it's the masculine tense, but in Arabic, that could be used to refer to men and women. 
So in the masculine tense in Arabic, it can include both of the genders, male and female. Allah could have just said mu'mineen, and it would have meant both, and the translators would have said believing men and believing women. But you, you'll see this every now and then in the Quran, Allah will say mu'mineen and mu'minat, believing men and believing women. Right? And maybe he does that to remove any ambiguity that people might think, oh, Quran is misogynistic, it's a very male-dominated book, it's only talking to the men of the community. No, Allah wants to, I think, remove that thought from the people that look, the Quran and the rewards from Allah are for both men and women. It's not that men get all the rewards and women just sit around and, and get nothing. No, Allah says He's promised the mu'mineen and the mu'minat. So the three things He mentions is that He will permit the believing men and believing women to enter paradise. Again, one of the greatest blessings is to be able to go into Jannah. Number two is He says that the believing men and women are promised that they would stay in paradise forever. There is no leaving Jannah. There's no namaz in Jannah. There's no fasting in Jannah. There's no azadari in Jannah. Although contrary to some people who write nawhaz that they won't enter into Jannah if there's no azadari, there's no concept of that because you're in paradise. It's happiness. In Jannah, there is no shahadat of Imam Hussein. He's now in Jannah. He's received the rewards. He's in paradise. So why would we do matam and, and cry in paradise? If Abu Abdullah is there with us, it, it doesn't even compute, right? So unless we have hadith that say there will be matam and majlis and jannah, we have to recognize that jannah is a place of bliss, of happiness, no responsibility, no praying, no fasting, nothing. It's just relaxing. And it's there forever. So we're not limited, right? Hell, for people who go to hell, some people will be there forever. But some will only be there for a certain time frame. And when they've been cleansed, they will make their way to Jannah. But when you're in Jannah, you can't do anything to get out of paradise. You're there forever. And then the third thing, which I want to focus on in the next few minutes before I conclude, is that Allah says the believing men and women are promised that they would have their past sins removed. Right? As Allah says, all of their sins will be blotted out. So this phrase, anhum sayyatihim, it comes in the Quran 14 different times with slight different wordings. Allah uses in this verse a present tense verb, other times it's a past tense verb. He uses different verbs to describe this concept of having our sins all removed from us. But one of the things I want to leave us with in the next few moments as I conclude is what are the actions that you and I can try on a practical daily level to have our sins removed. Now we know istighfar is the best by asking Allah for forgiveness, by saying literally astaghfirullah and meaning it, making sure that if we did sins in the past, that we try and recover and we make up for those sins. So let's say, just say somebody steals something from somebody else, whether it's at school or you're at work and you take something from work that you shouldn't have. Right. The first step in, in, in doing istighfar is to return that thing back. If you took company time, you had an hour for lunch and you took off two hours because you thought, ah, oh, it's not a big deal, company doesn't care. Yeah, you've stolen time from the company, you need to pay that back. Right? So other than that level of istighfar, of asking Allah for forgiveness and 
making amends for what we've done wrong, what else can we do to achieve uh, elimination of our sins? I'm going to give you five of the 14 things, and actually because there are other, those 14 are kind of repeated in the Quran, I've kind of categorized them in these five categories. So one thing which can guarantee our sins to be removed is to give in mustahab charity. Right? Sadaqah, any kind of recommended charity can remove our sins. We still have to ask Allah verbally for forgiveness, but to give in charity is a better, more quicker way we can say as a response for Allah to forgive us our sins. Right? Every day we take out sadaqah, for example. I know many families at home, they'll have a little container and every day they'll put a quarter or a, or a dollar or a loonie or a toonie or something in it for your own hifazat, your own safety and protection, that's great. And that same charity can also be that first category, that recommended sadaqah can be a means of our sins being forgiven. So every morning, even if you have just a nickel or a dime in your pocket or a quarter, don't think it's not enough. No, whatever little you have, brothers and sisters, and encourage your children from the, from the time that your children can walk, encourage them and show them that every morning, every night, we put a little of money in a sadqa bottle. And add to the niyat, add it that your own protection for forgiveness and say, Ya Allah, it's also for the protection of my 12th Imam. All three intentions together, you put that money in, your children put it in, give them their own little bucket, for example, and the sins are also being wiped away through that charity. Number two is working hard to follow the religious teachings, right? When we know that we live in a secular society, it becomes even more difficult to pray on time, to fast, to do the halal, to keep away from the haram. The more effort we put in, brothers and sisters, to do our obligations and keep away from the haram, another way for our sins to be removed by Allah. Again, not my word, these are all based on the 14 verses of the Quran that we can even give you references if you want them. Number three is to keep away from the major sins. The Quran and Hadith, they, they demarcate sins into major and minor. But you've maybe heard this theme, gunahana kabira, major sins and minor sins. So our scholars say that major sins are any sins in the Quran where Allah has spoken about a specific punishment like taking the wealth of the orphan, like riba, backbiting, talking about people, right? um, lying, other sins, shirk. These are major sins. And then drinking alcohol, a major sin, or any form of intoxicants. And then there are minor sins, you know, things that are not at the, at the level of, let's say, killing a human being, but there's still a sin, right? You kill a bird, it's a sin. You kill an ant. You step on an ant for no reason, it's a sin. You've still killed a creation of Allah for no reason. And the list of minor sins is, is endless, really. But when you keep away from the major, Allah says in the Quran, in tajtanibu kaba'ira, when you keep away from the major, ankum sayyatikum, that you will be forgiven the minor sins. So we just have to keep away from, know the major ones and keep away from them. Ensure we don't perform the minor intentionally. And again, our sins can be removed from us. The last two is following the Prophet and holding on to the five daily namaz and our obligatory charity. Khums, for example, which we'll be looking at one of the nights about the entire majlis will be about khums based on one of the verses of this chapter. 
paying that wajib zakatul fitr in the month of Ramadan or the day of Shawwal and the other wajibat also guarantees the forgiveness of our sins. And number five, which is a general one, is living a life of taqwa. Living a life of consciousness of Allah, of recognizing our responsibilities to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Salu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. So this, hopefully this um, can become a part of our lives. At least we try to work on them one at a time. We can't expect to do all of them at once, but we try our best to progress. As we talked about yesterday, Iman is a progression up the ladder of Iman. And so we also try in these areas to progress and to get to that level where we can have our sins forgiven and get to a level actually where we no longer even commit sins. And it's difficult, but at the same time, it is easy to do.